This morning I'd like to take a look at the death of a very important prophet in the Old Testament. His name was Elisha. You may turn to the book of 2 Kings chapter 13 and verse 14. 2 Kings chapter 13 and 14th verse, we read where it says, And Elisha was fallen sick of his sickness, whereof he died. Now, we're not told that he died at this moment, but we are told that he died of this sickness that he fell of. Now, Elisha was a man who was connected with miracles from the very beginning of his ministry all the way to his departure from this world. You go back and read about Elisha, uh, beginning primarily in 2 Kings chapter uh, 2. But we also go back to 1 Kings chapter 19 at a time in Elijah's life, who preceded Elisha. And we find where Elijah thought his journey had come to an end, that he had done everything that God would have him to do. But God reminded him by feeding him with a meal from heaven where he made a journey of 40 days and 40 nights in the strength of that meat. And then he told Elijah that he was not alone. He had reserved himself 7,000 men not yet bowed their knee to the image of Baal and there's still work for Elijah to do. He tells Elijah to go back. He says, Elijah, there's two kings that you're to anoint. And there's somebody who's going to follow you whose name is Elisha and you will anoint him to follow you. We find where Elisha began to follow Elijah closely. And Elisha asked Elijah if he would be able to receive a double portion of his power. In fact, Elisha, Elijah asked him what his desire would be. He said, I might be given a double portion of your spirit. Elisha knew all about the spirit of Elijah. Elijah was a man, of course, who worked many miracles. And the lifetime of Elijah and Elisha represent a second period of time in which God did great miracles in a public eye. Now, God's always been a God of miracles. There's never been a time when God hadn't worked miracles, but there's been three special times when God worked miracles, signs, and wonders in a public sense. The first was down in the land of Egypt with Moses and the ten plagues. The second time is the lifetime of Elijah and Elisha. And the third time be during the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles. Now, I believe God still does miracles today, but not in the manner and way of these three periods of time that I've just described to you. So Elisha knew all about Elijah and what God, how God had used Elijah in such a great and powerful way. Remember when John the Baptist came, we find in Luke chapter 1 where the angel says unto Zacharias, John's father, says his son, which would be John the Baptist, would going to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And so Elijah says, well, you've asked a hard thing. He said, but if you're with me when I depart, he says, it shall be given you. And sure enough, Elisha was there. And we see where God sent a chariot and horses of fire down from heaven to this earth and got Elijah and took him home to be with him in glory. One of two men since the beginning of time who did not experience death in the ordinary sense. We find Enoch was the first, Enoch was translated. And we find Elijah was called up to God in a whirlwind. God sent a chariot and a horse, horses of fire to get him and bring him home. Elisha witnessed that. If you number up all the miracles of Elijah and Elisha, you're going to find where Elisha performed approximately twice as many miracles as Elijah did. So a double portion of Elijah's spirit indeed fell on Elisha. So we start reading miracles that Elisha performed immediately. It goes from chapter 3 on up to chapter 13 here. And this is where we have the departure of Elisha. 
But interesting enough, from chapter 9 to chapter 13, we hear nothing about Elisha. Represents about 40 years period of time. But Elisha is not rusting out, I can assure you. Remember, I think it might have been last week when we spoke about Elijah got so cast down, so depressed, he reached a point where he felt like it was better for him to die than to live. You see people sometimes and they give out. And sometimes they kind of rust out from inactivity. We don't want to do that. But we'd like to wear out. We'd like to stay around here and be useful until our departure from this world. At least I trust that you would. Elisha has been very busy and active without any question for his 40 years, but the Lord doesn't record any of these activities. And now reach a point where Elisha is about to depart. We do not know how old Elisha was when he departed this scene. Sometimes God gives us ages, sometimes he doesn't. I think we all know that Moses lived to be 120. Joseph lived to be 110. Joshua lived to be 110. David lived to be 70. But here, and of course you go back to the book of Genesis and you find prior to the flood where men lived hundreds of years old, Bethuselah lived to be 969 years. So we're given the ages of people at times uh, how old they were when they passed this scene of life. Sometimes we don't. We do not know how old Elijah was and we don't know how old Elisha was. But by chronicling the kings and the ones that Elisha was around, the different kings of Israel, I think we can safely say when Elisha passed this scene of life, he was a very old man. And now he's on his deathbed. And here on his deathbed, uh, he's still very active, as you'll soon see. Again, it's important that we recognize that the Lord expects his children to serve him until they leave this world to be with him in glory. In fact, in the 92nd Psalm, toward the end of the 92nd Psalm, David says, the righteous shall flourish like the palm tree. And he says, the righteous uh, shall grow up like a cedar in Lebanon in the courts of God. He says, they that be planted, notice, they that be planted, trees are planted. He's using trees in illustration. He says, those that be planted in the house of the Lord. Are you planted in the house of the Lord today? If those be planted in the house of the Lord, they shall flourish in their old age. They shall be prosperous and fruitful in their old age. So, Whatever old age is, we want to be fruitful and we want to flourish and we want to be prosperous. There's always things for us to do. I take a look at the statement of the Apostle Paul found in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. He tells Timothy that when he comes to where he's at, he says, bring my cloak. Uh, Paul wanted to be warm, so he wanted to bring his cloak. He says, bring also my books and especially the parchments. Well, Paul, what are you going to do with books? Well, what anybody do with books? You read and study them, right? And Paul knew his time was short because just a few verses before that, he says, the time of my departure is at hand. He said, I fought a good fight. I kept the faith. I finished my course. Henceforth, there's a crown of righteousness laid up for me and not for me only, for all those that love his appearing. So Paul knows the end of his time on this earth is now reaching uh, that point. But yet, whatever time Paul has left, he wants books to read. He wants parchments. He used parchments to write. So Paul didn't have any thoughts about retiring. Men of God do not retire. They may adjust. They may change. But men of God never step aside from the scene. They never retire. As long as God gives them physical strength and mental stability, they have things that they can still be doing. You take a, a look at uh, 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 Jacob found in uh, Hebrews 11, 20, 
uh, 21, it says when Jacob was a dying, that means he was shortly, he just had a short time left. While Jacob was a dying, he blessed both the sons of Joseph and leaning upon his, leaning upon his staff, uh, upon his bed, he worshiped God. Do you see the scene? Jacob in his old days, he only has a short time left. So what is he doing? Well, he's busy blessing the sons of Joseph. Then upon his bed, he's leaning upon his staff in a posture here that shows his weakness and frailty. But at the same time, what's he doing? He's worshiping God. The next verse says, And Joseph, when he died, gave mention to the children of Israel concerning the departure, their departure that was going to come. You read this in the last chapter of Genesis, chapter 50. Then it says, also gave commandment concerning his bones. So the very last act of Joseph here, when he died, he died in 110, he tells them, when you leave out of this place, you get my bones and take them out of here with you. And he says, God has promised to come and deliver you out of this land. So see Joseph, we see Jacob, uh, we see Paul, and we see Elisha right here. And even Elijah, when you go back and read the first two chapters of 2 Kings, you find Elijah was going from place to place, from Jordan to Gilgal, etc., about four different places that he goes here, and he's ministering to God's people when God sends that chariot of fire and that horse down from heaven to get him and take him home to glory. They're not in a retirement home. They're not sitting by the wayside. They're not, uh, uh, you know, twiddling their fingers and their thumbs. They're not whittling on a stick. They are busy still doing the service of God, even though they have just a short time remaining here upon the face of this earth. So regardless of your age, you're valuable in the house of God. That's at least one lesson this morning. I get out of all of that and hopefully get a few others. But that's one lesson I get out of that. Regardless of your age, you're important and valuable in the house of God, whether you're young, middle-aged, or old. And I say middle-aged because we're so used to hearing that term, as I've told you before. The Bible says nothing about middle age. It says nothing about middle income. It's always two things in the Bible. You're young, you're old, you're poor, you're rich. Uh, one way or the other, there's nothing in between. Man's invented that expression, uh, you know, to fill up the, the, the two uh, extremes here. And so we find where Elisha has fallen sick of a sickness where he will die of this sickness. Now, you might think, well, why couldn't Elisha perform a miracle to keep himself alive? He performed a lot of other miracles. Why not one here? The Apostle Paul certainly was given extraordinary gifts. And he had the ability, and we have several examples where the Apostle Paul was used of God to raise somebody from the dead and perform miracles. And as an apostle, he had that ability. But the time come that the Apostle Paul also had to step off the scene of life, right? And so in my experience, and I'm sure in your experience, I can tell you many times uh, that I have been delivered by God in His providence, so I wouldn't be here speaking to you this morning. And I've, I've given a few of them to you over, over a period of years. Uh, but I can tell you two or three different times without a shadow of a doubt, had it not been for God's providential dealings in my life, God intervening on my behalf, I'd have left this world a long time ago. But I still know that out here in the future somewhere, there's a day coming that God will not deliver me from death. But I also know God will use death to deliver me for some other things. He'll use death to deliver me, give me that greatest deliverance I've ever had. The greatest deliverance I anticipate that God will ever give me is when he allows me to pass this scene of life. Then I'll be delivered from Satan. He'll never tempt me again. Then I'll be delivered from 
the temptation of Satan, the, uh, the assaults of Satan. I'll be delivered from this wicked world in which I live. I'll be delivered from arthritis. I'll be delivered from pain and sorrow, um, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. I'll be delivered from all enemies I may have uh, uh, made along the journey of life. I'll be delivered uh, from uh, life itself. And there's uh, good things in life. It's a mixture of joy and sorrow. But I'll be delivered from all of that, so God will use death to give me the greatest delivery, I believe. I was thinking about that this morning. He'll give me death. He'll allow death to come to deliver me and give me the greatest deliverance that I've ever experienced here in this world. So I don't look at death as being the enemy. I look at death as being the friend. I'm not signing up for a trip today or anything like that because I'm human enough. I'm going to try to hang around here as long as I can. Every once in a while, I kind of get the feeling maybe somebody might could use me or need me. And if I can still be of help to somebody, uh, then I'd like to hang around long enough to be that help. Now, Elisha is on his deathbed. But while he's on his deathbed, he's still sharp as a tack. And you'll find where the king of Israel pays him a visit. The king of Israel comes to him. Uh, the king of Israel didn't give him many visits when he was healthy. But now he's about to pass this scene of life. He apparently gets the report that Elisha is very sick uh, and may depart at most any time. So the king of Israel comes to where he's at. He comes uh, and comes to Elisha and he says he wept over his face. And he said, Oh, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. Now, that statement is important because it's exactly the same statement verbatim, word for word, that Elisha said when Elijah departed. That's very interesting to me. I doubt very seriously the king knew anything about that statement. When Elijah departed, again, when God took him to heaven, we find Elisha on the scene. Elisha says, oh, my father, my father, says, uh, uh, you know, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. That's an expression showing that the most important man in the kingdom of Israel in that day was not the king. The most important man in that day was the prophet Elijah. And the most important man in the kingdom of Israel, the day that the king visits Elisha, is not the king. The most important par person is Elisha. He is the strength of Israel. And if you go back to the 10th chapter, you'll find where uh, the king, uh, king uh, Jehu, I believe it is, but anyway, the king here um, of the, uh, the Syrians has entered into the land of Israel and has already captured several cities and the current king of Israel knows he's in trouble. So I'll give him credit enough to go into the man of God. But I also know that he knows that the man of God had been used of God to deliver Israel several times in the past. So you go back to chapter 3 in 2 Kings and you'll find where three kings, the king of Edom, the king of Israel, and the king of Judah come together. And they're concerned about an invasion of the Moabites. And so the king of uh, Judah says, is there not a prophet we can inquire of? They said, well, there's a, there's a man by the name of Elisha. He says, let's go talk to him. So they come to Elisha and present the scenario to Elisha. And interesting, Elisha says, were it not for Jehoshaphat, I wouldn't pay you other two kings any attention at all. The king of Edom and the king of Israel were wicked men, corrupt leaders, and uh, he recognizes that. And he said, it wasn't for the other king, the king of Judah, I wouldn't uh, basically give you the time of day. But because of him, he's going to give them a plan whereby God will deliver them. And I thought about that. 
as I was walking Timothy and Molly's dog today, they're getting back today from a trip to Georgia, and I have to be the dog keeper, and, uh, and Karen's not there, so I have to walk him morning, I have to walk him evening. You know, he doesn't always cooperate. He's just uh, a nuisance. Uh, sorry, Tim, Molly. But anyway, I love the dog. He's a good dog, you know. But it reminds me why I don't have a dog. You know, when I see people walking the dog and it's 25 degrees outside, it reminds me why I don't have a dog. And I get to talking about it and Karen reminds me about all that. But anyhow, she is a wonderful dog. Barbie's her name, by the way. Uh, so I'm meditating on this. And uh, I'm thinking about this king. He's come here. He weeps over Elisha. Now, it might look like that he has great affection for Elisha. And perhaps he did. But on the other hand, he knows when Elisha leaves this world, the strength of Israel is gone. And so he knows about the story I was telling you about in 2 Kings chapter 3. And he says, we wouldn't, I wasn't paying attention to you if it wasn't for the king of Judah. He said, but here's what you do. He says, you go down to the valley and you dig ditches. And these ditches are going to be miraculously filled with water. It's not going to rain. Rain's not going to fill them up. These ditches shall miraculously fill with water. And in the morning when the sun comes up, the sun's going to shine on the water. It's going to look like blood. And the Moabites are going to think that the Israelites are in great trouble. This reflects that they have suffered great injuries and they rise up and come there to capture the Israelites. But God has the Israelites set for an ambush. So they come, the Israelites defeat the Moabites. Now, here's something I want you to remember. Here's a statement made in all this. It doesn't need to go unnoticed. We find where Elisha tells those three kings, he says, and this is just a light thing for the Lord. Just a light thing. Uh, everything, of course, uh, is a light thing in a sense, but in the eyes of men. He said, this is just a light thing for the Lord. It's no big deal that the Lord recalls water to fill these ditches down here in the valley. It's no big deal that he's going to use uh, uh, this water that miraculously appears in the ditches in the valley to defeat the enemy, and you don't even have to do a thing. It's just a light thing with the Lord. This king remembers that. Then we come to 2 Kings chapter 6 for a familiar story when the king of Syria has decided he wants to capture Israel, and it's going to begin with a capture of the king, so he uh, lays an ambush for the king. But Elisha tells the king where not to go. And this happened several times to where the king of Syria says, I've got a traitor in the camp. He will, he's trying to find out who the traitor is, but his servants tell him, he says, you don't have a traitor in the camp. There's a man of God down there. Everything you think in your bedchamber, God's telling him what's going on, and he's telling the king. Elisha knew every plan that the king of Syria had made to try to ambush the king of Israel. So he tells the king of Israel, the king of Israel avoids it, and the king of Syria, his plans are destroyed. So now he says, well, we just need to capture this guy. Now you would think, would you not, that if Elisha knew about the ambush for the king, he'd also know about the ambush or the capture that he's got in mind for him. Would you not think that? But you see, the wicked don't uh, understand these kind of things. So he sends a great army down there to get one man. And Elisha's got a servant. And the servant looks out, and the servant sees this great army, and he's greatly afraid. He's really frightened. And he comes to Elisha, and he says, uh, you know, he tells what, what he saw there. And Elisha very calmly just tells him this. This is an important statement in this story. He says to his servant, there'll be more with us that be with them. Now, when your servant looked out there and saw the great host of the enemy, 
which was all the horses and all the chariots, and he looked around at Israel, he knew that was not a true statement, literally. How can there be more with us than with them? I've seen the enemy. They got more than we've got. But you know what Elisha did? He prayed that the Lord would open up the eyes of the servant. And this story is about God opening and closing. He opens up the eyes of the servant. The servant looks again. This time he sees a second army. And the second army is horses and chariots of fire. That's the difference. First army is horses and chariots. Second army is horses and chariots of fire because that's God's army. And the horses and chariots of fire separate Elisha from the enemy. In other words, to get to Elisha, they got to come through God's army. Then the prophet, the servant understood. And then the Lord, Elisha prayed, the Lord would shut the eyes of the enemy, close their eyes and blind them, which God did. And then God, uh, Elisha takes them by the hand and leads them, just leads them back to where they came from. And then Elisha, showing his compassion, prayed to the Lord, he'd open his eyes, their eyes again, and they opened their eyes and they're not where they thought they were. <laughs> the king knows that story. And in the next chapter, chapter 7, well, toward the end of chapter 6, you're going to read where there was a great famine in the land. And you're going to find where the Bible says that an ass's head was going to be sold for four score pieces of silver. That's 80. High price for something usually is worthless. And it said the fourth part of the dung of a dove was going to be sold for five pieces of silver. Something normally be totally worthless, but bringing high prices because there's a great famine in the land. Here's what Elisha says. He says, tomorrow at this time, 24 hours from now, he says, fine flour shall be sold. I think it's maybe five shekels. And barley shall be sold, again, for a very reasonable amount. In 24 hours, it was going to reverse. And there was a man who represented the king. He told him, he says, if God opened up the windows of heaven, this couldn't happen. He says, you'll see it, but you won't eat of it. And this is the story of the four lepers. And the four lepers had, you know, if you had leprosy, he was known as having a disease that was the, you were known as a walking dead. They got leprosy, they're walking dead. But they talk among themselves. They said, well, we don't have anything to eat. The Syrians have got stuff to eat in that city where they're holding up in. Say, if we stay here, we're going to die. Say, if we go into the city of the Syrians, they might kill us and we're going to die. But what's the difference? If we die outside or inside. But it's just possible that maybe they'll spare our lives. So they decide they're going to do that. They go into the city. Before they get there, God causes a great noise to come when there was nothing to make the noise. God just created a great noise. And the noise frightened the Syrians to such an extent that they fled the city immediately and they left their food, they left their drinks, they left their clothes, they left everything. They were such a big hurry to get out of there. In other words, God scared them out of the city. And when the four lepers got in there, they couldn't believe their eyes. There was nobody there. There was no soldiers there. There were no people there. But there was plenty of food, plenty of drink, and plenty of clothes. And boy, they just started having a great time. And they're filling up on it. And then they thought, well, you know, this is not a good thing. We ought to share this news. We ought to tell our brethren back home what we have come up with. And so they go back and they tell them, and they're skeptical to begin with, but they investigate, find it to be the truth. Finding to be the truth. Now, how did that story start out? Second Kings chapter 7, verse 1, he says, Hear the word of the Lord. You remember the other two statements? This is a light thing for God to do this. There be more with us than be with them. Hear the word of the Lord. And he gave the word of the Lord. And that 
servant of the king who doubted all that. The people in such a hurry to get into the city, he was keeping the, the gate of the city and they just ran over him and they trampled him to death. And just like Elisha said, he'd see it, but he wouldn't eat of it. King knows all about this. That's why he says, oh, father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof, he recognizes that the strength of Israel is not him. The strength of Israel is the prophet Elisha. So how does Elisha respond? Now this king, if you study what's said about this king, you'll see he's no giant of faith. I can tell you that now. <laughs> he's really not a man of faith, but he can follow instructions. He's intelligent enough to follow instructions, and the instructions he's going to follow do not have to be by faith to do it. So here's what Elisha tells him. Elisha says, take your bows and arrows. I want you to notice how he broke it up. In the wedding yesterday, we got to the vows, I broke it up for Mason and Holly. Mason was nervous. <laughs> I broke it up real short for Mason. <laughs> he got it all right. Okay? So you have to break things down for some people, right? So here, Elisha's going to break it down for the king. Can you follow instructions, old King Joash? He says, take your bow and arrows. The Bible says he took the bows and arrows. He says, put your hands on the bow. He put it, and it says, he put his hands on the bow. And then Elisha took his hands and put his hands on top of the hands of the king. So what does that convey? That tells me that he's telling the king here, the Lord's going to deliver you, but he's going to use, as a, use you as an instrument in the deliverance. You'll be working together, in other words. Now that reminds me of what Paul says in various places. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, about verse 7 and 8, Paul says that Paul planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. He says, who's Paul and who's Apollos but servants of the Lord? Paul planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. He says, we're labors together with God. Paul never tried to labor independently of God. He always gave God the credit and God the glory. The next verse says, By the grace of God which has given me as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation. How did he get the wisdom to lay the foundation as a wise master builder? God gave it to him. God gave it to him by his grace. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in the opening verses, Paul said, By the grace of God, I am what I am. He said, I'm the least of all the apostles, not beaten to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And he says, uh, and the grace that God bestowed upon me was not bestowed upon me in vain, for I labor more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. A man cannot labor effectively without the grace of God. You cannot serve God effectively without the grace of God. You understand, you requires the grace of God. So he said, I'm going to put my hands on your hands. And so he does. Then he says, open the windows to the east. He, his Bible says he opened the windows to the east. Why the east? Because that's where the enemy was. That's where the enemy had already captured several cities. It's where the enemy had already gained a, a good deal of ground in capturing Israel. It says, open the windows toward the east. So he opened the windows toward the east, just like he said. Notice, step by step by step. He says, then, shoot an arrow. So the Bible says he shot the arrow. Now notice the steps. Take the bow and arrow, he took it. 
Put your hands on the bow. He put them on. Open the window. He opened it. He said, shoot the arrow. He shot it. He says, it's the arrow of the Lord's deliverance. Ye shall defeat Syria at Aphek. He's telling me ahead of time, victory is given you. Victory is going to come by God. God has given you the victory. And all this symbolized that. See, people in the East, especially in you know, biblical days especially, when people tried to get a point across, they used uh, uh, visual illustrations. Elisha's using a visual illustration right here with the bow in the air. Why didn't he just say, God's going to be with you and you're going to conquer the enemy? Why didn't he just say that? He gave him a visual illustration of it. And you can see that in your mind, can't you? The book of Jeremiah is filled with visual illustrations. Let's go to Jeremiah chapter, I think it's chapter 18, and he gives an illustration of the potter and the clay. He said, I want you to go down to the potter's house. They went down to the potter's house, and there the potter was making a vessel with a wheel, turning the wheel, making a vessel. And he says, the vessel was marred in the hand of the potter. Israel is that vessel that was marred in the hand of the potter. potter is God. The potter is God. Israel was chosen of God, created of God, and uh, made of God. They're the potter, I mean, they're the clay in the potter's hand. What happened to the clay? It was marred in the hand of the potter. That's Israel. God didn't mar them, they marred themselves. Would you see the picture? You come to Acts chapter 21, you find a prophet named Agabus. And Paul is getting ready to go to Jerusalem. But Agabus takes the girdle of Paul and he binds his hands, he binds his feet. He says, the same thing shall be done to the man that goes to Jerusalem. They shall bind him just like this and deliver him to the Gentiles. He's talking about Paul. But he gave a visual illustration of it, right? He took Paul's girdle. He bound his hands. He bound his feet. He said, can we be done the same thing? The man's going to be bound. What did Paul say? He said, I'm not only ready to go to Jerusalem to be bound. I'm ready to go to Jerusalem to die there for the Lord's sake. Visual illustrations, in other words. Jeremiah chapter 3, the Lord said, Israel hath forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Do you see that? God is the fountain of living waters, yet Israel forsook him. And he says, on top of that, they've hewn themselves out cisterns, even broken cisterns, which can hold no water. A broken cistern is no better than not having a cistern. If it's broken, what good is it? And that's what they did by their own works, by their own means, by their own hands. They forsook God, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves out cisterns which could hold no water. There's your visual illustrations. Jeremiah is filled with them from the beginning of the book until the end. God will say unto Jeremiah, what do you see, Jeremiah? And he said, I see an almond rod flourishing, etc. What do you see, uh, Jeremiah? And the list goes on and on, just books filled with visual illustrations. He gives them a visual illustration. Then Elijah, Elisha tells the king, after he's given this visual illustration, which let's recap one more time, we find the king could follow instruction. It didn't take faith to do that, just took obedience. He says, take a bow and arrows. He got the bow and arrows. Put your hands on the bow. Put his hands on the bow. Then Elisha put his hands on his hands. He says, open up the window. The window's open. He says, shoot the air. He shots, shoots the air and, toward the east. Then he tells him the sword, of the, the deliverance of the air of Israel. 
This is God's deliverance, he says to the king. Elisha's about ready to step off the scene of life. But he's going to give wise counsel one more time before he draws his dying breath. Then he tells the king to do something. He says, I want you to take the arrows, O king. By the way, who's in control here, the king or Elisha? <laughs> I think Elisha is, isn't he? He says, take the arrows and smite the ground. He didn't tell him how many times. Elisha tells him to smite the ground. He smites the ground three times. And Elisha is very wroth. He's very angry. He shows righteous indignation. Here's what he says to him. He says, thou hast done foolishly. You smote the ground only three times. He says, you should have smote at least five or six. In other words, he did not have the spiritual discernment, the spiritual light on this situation here. This king did not to know what was right there in front of him. He didn't take advantage of the situation. He should have smitten the, the ground as long as he had strength to smite the ground. Because every time he smote the ground, that was an indication how many times God would deliver him. He says, now God's going to deliver you three times from the Syrians. But he says, you've done foolishly not smiting at least five or six. He says, then you would have consumed Syria and you didn't do it. You didn't do it. And then we read in verse 20, Elisha died. And they buried him which is always the proper way to take care of the dead when they die, you bury them. They buried him. Now, they didn't embalm things like the Egyptians. They washed the body, and they had a quick burial. And they bury him. You say, well, Brother Lawrence, didn't Elisha have a double spirit over Elijah? Yes, he did. Well, didn't God take Elijah to heaven in a whirlwind? In a chatter fire and horses? Yes, he did. But Elisha dies just like men ordinarily do. God is sovereign in all things, is he not? Moses was 120 when he died, and his eyes were not dim, his forces not abated. In other words, God allowed Moses to retain his physical faculties uh, at 120 just as much as he had when he was 30 years old. But I look at Joshua who followed Moses. Joshua died at 110. Joshua lived 10 years less than Moses. And what I read about Joshua in Joshua chapter 23, verse 1, Joshua says, well, the Bible says about Joshua, he was very old and stricken in years. He didn't see as well as he used to see. The Lord didn't do for Joshua, he did for Moses. God's sovereign. But I tell you what, Joshua did have enough of. He had enough strength left to say, make that famous saying over here in Joshua 24, verse 15. He said to the Israelites, Choose you this day whom ye shall serve, whether it be the God of the Amorites, whose land you dwell, or the land of your fathers on the other side of the flood over there. Talking about the flood of Jordan, not, not Noah's flood. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He had enough strength to say that. As some of his dying words, dying words of Joshua. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Thank God that Joshua had enough courage to stand up like a man and speak for his household. John the Baptist was beheaded. Come to Acts chapter 12 and you'll find where Herod slays John, but he spares Peter. God can handle things any way he wants to. He's not accountable to anybody. Elisha 
performed many, excuse me, Elijah performed many miracles and he did not die. But let's notice what happened after Elisha is buried. Sometime later, somebody dies. And they're making preparations to bury this man. And a band of Moabites come in. And when the people, the mourners, are about to ready to bury this man, they see the band of Moabites and they're frightened. And they're scared. And the Bible says they cast him into the sepulchre of Elisha. <laughs> they lowered him down. In other words, they're not going to take time to dig his grave. They're going to put him in Elisha's sepulchre. And then, lo and behold, when the man they let down touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood up on his feet. <laughs> wow! <laughs> Elisha did another miracle after he died. Sometimes they say, what can a dead man do when normally a dead man can't do anything, right? A man who died physically can't do anything after that, except the vote. We know that. But apart from voting when he's dead, what else can he do? But a man dead in trespass and sins can't do anything either. He cannot do one thing the religious world tells him he's got to do to have life because he's dead. He can't believe. He doesn't have a heart to do it with. He can't understand, don't have a mind to do it with. He can't, he can't exercise faith because he doesn't possess it. He's dead. But here's something a dead man did. <laughs> Elisha performed a miracle after he was dead. When the man that was died put him into Elisha's sepulchre, when he touched the bowls of Elisha, he revived. So what does that tell me also? It tells me that Elisha was still God's right-hand man. It still tells me that Elisha was God's prophet and God was uh, Elisha's God. That's what it tells me. He matched his dad. He's not through. <laughs> One of the most amazing scenes in the Bible. <laughs> I reckon that created some conversation, don't you think? <laughs> Can you imagine that? When they put him down there. Uh, they were still around, no doubt, because they let him down and stood as, as soon as he touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Uh, I bet you they'd never run as fast in their life when they left that place. Don't you imagine? Boy, <laughs> I'm telling you, they would have won a track meet, I'm sure. <laughs> they'd, they'd have been gold medal winners in the Olympics. They were flying, I have no doubt about that. And boy, I, I doubt they ever looked back. Oh, I tell you what, I found out you can run faster when you're afraid than when you're not. When I was growing up as a small boy, it was my job to go out to the hen house. Yeah, we had a hen house with actual hens in the nest. And get the eggs. It'd be dark. <laughs> and I always hated to feel underneath those hens and get those eggs. I just know that I was going to get pecked in a second. But I'm going to tell you, I put the eggs in the basket and it's dark. And I headed back toward the house. I'm telling you, I flew. <laughs> I'm telling you, I, I had speed I didn't know I had. <laughs> That's when I should have been trying out for the track team, for sure. You can run faster when you're afraid. Adrenaline kicks in. I ain't no telling what that scene looked like. I wish the Bible had described it for us. Elisha. <laughs> what a wonderful man he was. 
how Elisha was still serving God all the way up to his departure, and then after his departure, God still used him to do a miracle. I hope we learned a few things here <laughs> this morning. Now, I'm quitting five minutes early, but I'm going to put it in my bank to use later. <laughs> now, I want to say in closing that Brother Jeremy Neighbors, today is his last day for a while. Brother Jeremy is moving to Texas. Brother Jeremy is getting married. He's getting married here, thank God, in October, so I know he'll be back by October for sure. And we're going to miss you, Brother Jeremy, greatly. We sure are. And uh, Brother Jeremy's moving there because his family situation, circumstances of ever requires for him to go there rather than her to come here now. But we hope with some time that will change. Okay? And we look forward to the day, Brother Jeremy, when, when you come back. Okay? Now, we're going, to, we're going to have a closing hymn, give an opportunity to anyone that would like to unite with the church. And after the first verse, Brother Jeremy, I'd like to ask you to come to the front and let everybody be able to come by and give you the right